0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the the whole text 23 through. 11.1, although we made it part of the way through last week, this is the reading of God's Word. All things, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If any one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved." Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So we started this this passage last week, which just by way of reminder, this is is the concluding uh, section that started back in chapter 8 and verse 1. And uh, one commentator has a really nice little summary of our Section so far. He basically says, of course, you can buy food in the market, of course, you can dine with friends. His prohibition of idle food does not mean that they must retreat to the seclusion of a gloomy ghetto. Nevertheless, he anticipates potential problems presented by food that a Christian might purchase from the market or food that a Christian might eat in the home of an unbeliever who might have offered it to idols. So, We don't have the same ethical challenge that the Corinthians had. Nobody's being tempted to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, all right? But what Paul does present in this passage is incredibly relevant for us. Even though the historical setting may not have direct relevance in terms of of our lives, and we don't have temples and priests that sacrifice meat to idols. Uh, What Paul teaches within this context is relevant to us. Is there any relevance to let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor? That, by the way, verse 24 which is, in a sense, sort of a a summation of what Paul has been getting at all along, is really distinctly Christian behavior. It's distinctly Christian conduct. Living for the sake of others. Refusing to seek your own good, but rather seeking the good of your neighbor. And, of course, the reason why this is distinctly Christian is because it is modeled on the lord jesus christ who gave himself up for us romans 15 christ did not come to please himself christ gave himself as a as a, a pleasing aroma a sacrifice to god in love and so it's christ that actually serves as as the great model for us as christians so those who claim to know christ as redeemer Look to him also as their great exemplar, their great example, their great pattern. And if Christ was willing to leave the the glory of heaven and the, the, the majesty of the right hand of the Father in order to enter into this world of misery and woe for love's sake, Paul says, can't you put others first? So... We're not going to review 23 and 24, but I do want to kind of pick up in 25. Uh, I mentioned uh, Sunday morning um, in basketball, you have uh, shot selections, right? And sometimes if you have a bad game, it's because you've made poor shot selections. And sometimes in preaching, you should make better shot selections. And of course, what I'm talking about... Jason knows exactly what I'm talking about. There are times where you should just stop. But you're going to go ahead and take another shot, <laughs> or maybe another two or three, and then you think back. So last Wednesday, I drove home, and the whole way, the whole way. So Ariel calls me. She's, are almost home? Yeah. How'd it go tonight? Great. I should have stopped at 7.52. All right. So I kind of rushed through some of this, and... Um, and, and really should, should have ended on uh, seeking the good of others so um, you know so after preaching all these years there's still so much to learn verses twenty five and twenty six paul is is posing this uh, this situation where <clears throat> you now have been you've gone to the store, you've gone to the meat market, you've gone to buy your meat, and he says, basically, don't ask. Don't ask. When you go to buy meat for your own personal consumption, don't ask whether or not the meat had been a part of sacrifice. There's a very good chance that the meat that was being sold in the meat market had been butchered by a priest and offered on a pagan altar, and uh, not all of it, but certainly some of it, and Paul says, you don't need to ask. In fact, then he turns around in the second part of verse 25, and he says, so you're to eat without inquiring or investigating for the sake of conscience. Now, it's important for us to remember that here's Paul as, as, a, as a Jewish person, and Jews were morally obligated to ask. When they went into the marketplace, they needed to ask, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? And Paul is actually saying, Christians, you have the freedom to go in and to buy and to eat without question. And when he says, don't ask for conscience sake, I don't think that what he means is, don't ask so that you burden your conscience. I think he's saying, you don't need to ask for conscience sake because this is not ultimately a matter of conscience. This is, this is not, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, I was uh, as, as you know, 10,000 times over, I was raised Catholic. You did not eat meat on Fridays. Okay? Okay. As a kid, I remember distinctly getting out of school early, went to Catholic school, and my mom took us to McDonald's. Do you know why, as a Catholic, you go to McDonald's on a Friday? (laughs) filet of fish sandwich, right? And I remember one time, I think I was probably about sixth grade, and I went and I ate... And I got a um, a cheeseburger, <laughs> and my mom wasn't paying attention, and i wasn't paying attention and i'm about halfway through this cheeseburger and I realized that I had just consigned myself to hell, and my conscience immediately just smote me right I mean, I was just absolutely devastated, and I was like, "Can you take me to confession right now, please you know and <clears throat> I think that, that that Paul would say something like this: don't worry about eating meat on Fridays for conscience' sake it's not even a matter of conscience it's nothing right it's nothing There's, there, there There is no real issue of conscience, so don't ask don't even worry about it and then he turns around and says, Why you shouldn't worry about it it's because Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Everything belongs to God. All that meat that's out there in the meat market, all of it comes from cows that God created, right? All of it is from the hand of God. So don't even worry about it. This is not a matter of conscience. Now, it's also interesting to note that uh the Jews would frequently use psalm twenty four one as a text for indeed giving thanks for all of their food, the recognition that it came from God. but they very clearly made a delineation between that which was clean and that which was unclean. So from a Jewish perspective, in one sense, all food came from God. But then in another, from another point of view, unclean food certainly didn't come from God. You don't eat the unclean food, right? Well, remember, Mark 7, Jesus declares all food clean. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out, right? And then, of course, you have the great uh, passage in Acts chapter 10 where, where Peter is, is given um, a hunting mandate, rise, kill, eat, right? And uh, the angel handed him a Winchester rifle. And so... That's not in the text, but um, it's marginal reading. But uh, so Peter, of course, objects, and he says, no way, Lord. There's there's something actually about the vision in in Acts 10 that makes me laugh because uh, this same Peter, by the way, who refuses to eat anything unclean is living with a tanner. You know what tanners did? They skinned animals. In fact, tanners were considered unclean in their person by Jewish tradition. And so here's Peter living with Simon the Tanner, right? And he's like, oh, no way, Lord, I can't touch any of that stuff. I haven't eaten. I, I, don't, eat, I don't eat lobster. That's, you know, not kosher. And, uh, and, and God says to Peter, don't call unclean what God has said is clean. Of course, he's talking about people, but he uses dietary laws to prove the point. And so when, when a Jewish person used Psalm twenty four one, there was, uh, yes, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, but there's a little caveat except for the unclean stuff. Paul's like, there's no such thing as unclean stuff, right? So remember what, what Paul says in Romans 14, where he says, um, so to... Um, uh, to the one who has a good conscience, all things are clean, right? All things are clean. And so here's Paul, and he's just, he's just trying to let them know, listen, um, you can give thanks to God because everything that is on your plate comes from the Lord, and uh, there is no unclean thing except for uh, Brussels sprouts Amen. and squash, Beats. Amen. <laughs> I have good textual evidence that beets did not come along until after the curse. Okay? Beets are just awful. So other than those few things are, that are unclean, everything else is really great. And so, and so here's Paul, and he just he wants them to know that this is this is the way that they need to live, and they need to live this way for the sake of each other. And then he poses another situation in verse 27: if one of the unbelievers invites you, and you want to go eat anything that's set before you without asking question for conscience' sake. So now he moves from what you buy in the marketplace now to the idea of the, the possibility of being invited to an unbeliever's home. Could a Jewish person go into a Gentile home? No. So by the way, that's another thing about Acts 10, that the, the, the vision that Peter has frees him, it liberates him to go into the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel, right? So, so Paul says, hey, if an unbeliever invites you to come and, and eat then, and you desire to go, then you should go and you should eat everything that's set in front of you. Clearly, the invitation is, um, you know, hey, I'd like to have you over for dinner. And, of course, Jewish scruples would have prohibited going into an unbeliever's home. But Paul does not want Christians to cut themselves off from pagan family and friends and neighbors. So you remember the confusion that the Corinthians had back in chapter 5, where Paul says, I told you not to associate... I did not mean the the immoral of the world because then that would mean you'd have to go out of the world. I meant you don't associate with the immoral among any so-called brothers. Okay, So there's a difference. There's a difference. So if this guy over here says, I'm a Christian and yet he is uh, a notorious fornicator... He's not a Christian, he should be under discipline and put out of the church, and the church of God should actually have a relationship with him that is reflective of the fact that he's been put out. Paul says, you don't do that with the world. Guess how the world is going to act? Well, like worldlings. What a surprise. So if an unbeliever asks you to, 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 to dinner, go ahead and go. Paul did not have this, this idea that somehow if if you are engaged with a pagan neighbor or a pagan family member, that you're the one that's going to be contaminated. Not at all. In fact, they might be sanctified by your influence. Okay. Now, I always have to give a little caveat on, on this kind of thing, especially for young people because sometimes young people, are, are the greatest advocates of hanging out with bad people, right? And so they hang out with bad people because they like bad people. And then when mom and dad say, don't hang out with bad people, they say, but how are they going to come to know Jesus? And the reality is, is they're not interested in telling him about Jesus. They're interested in just hanging out with bad people. And so I would remind you that there's a caveat, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals, right? What do the Proverbs teach? You hang out with an angry person, you're going to become an angry person. If you hang out with gluttons and drunkards, guess what? You're going to be a glutton and a drunkard, all right? So, so Paul is not saying, hey, just, just hang out with whoever you want and don't worry about influences because that's not true. But what he is saying is, become all things to all men. So for Jews, I became as a Jew so that I could win Jews. To those without the laws, as one without the law yet still in law to Christ, for the sake of winning those without the law, right? So Paul's, Paul's motive really is always evangelistic. It's always a missionary motive. And so Paul wants them to understand, listen, if you're asked to go, go and then whatever they serve you, just eat. The text actually says everything that's put before you, eat. Which, of course, is really sort of just what your grandmother told you, that's clean your plate. And so you don't ask there either because of conscience. Now, Paul does not specifically say immediately what he means because of conscience, but he will in a minute. So here's the scenario, so this isn't the meat market, this is the unbeliever's home, you're sitting there, and um, the servant comes out, and there's this wonderful big uh, steak that's been put in front of you, and Paul says, "Don't, don't even ask about it, just eat it. But then he gives a hypothetical situation. So the first, if an unbeliever asks you, that's that's a likely situation that could very well happen. The next situation is somewhat hypothetical. If somebody, if anyone, is what the text says, if anyone says to you, this is meat offered to idols, Paul then says, don't eat it. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed and conscience sake. Now, we touched on this, but way too quickly last, last week. So who is the, the anyone in view? Well, it could be the host, the person that invited. So the pagan boss invites you to dinner, and then he, the, ta, the, the meat comes, and he goes, by the way, that was offered to Zeus. Paul says, you find that out, don't eat. Or maybe it's a, another pagan guest, and he leans over and says, you know where they got that? And that was meat that was offered to Zeus, or Isis, or whoever, right? Paul says, don't eat. So who's the anyone? Well, maybe the host, but I think probably, more likely, a non-believing guest. I, I doubt that it's a fellow believer, So why would somebody say, the the meal's been served and everything's been laid before you. Why would somebody say, as you, you cut the first piece, you know, and you're just about to stick it in your mouth, ah, and they go, ah, Zeus. Why would somebody do that? Well, it could be out of courtesy, trying to help out the Christian, Right? I mean, unbelievers are always more than happy to help out the Christian. Okay? Maybe they know Jewish scruples, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, he doesn't know, and so better, I should probably tell him. But there's also this possibility, and if you hang around unbelievers, you know that this happens. Maybe it's a challenge, right? Maybe it's a challenge, so David Garland, he has he says this, this is really good. He says, thus, the person might be challenging the Christian in a ticklish situation in order to force either a compromise in faith by eating or damage to important social relationships by refusing to eat, okay? So it could be uh, noble motives. Hey, that's been offered to an idol. Uh, aren't you a Christian, right? Or it could be, I'm going to get this guy, right? Our unbelievers, d- do some unbelievers try to trip up believers? All the time. You know, when I, when I was in college, a bunch of us from Biola worked at Michelin Tire. We were part-time guys, and we were the guys that lo- unloaded and loaded trailers, And we worked with guys that were, um, almost all of them were significantly older than us. They knew that we were all Christians. And you know what they tried to do all the time? They tried to stumble us all the time through ways that I'm not even going to mention here. But they were always trying to kind of do a gotcha, right? try to either make you compromise by maybe listening to a joke that you shouldn't be listening to, or turn around and and just make you look stupid, right? That's what unbelievers do, You remember, the, the world hates Christ. If it hates Christ, it hates us. And so it could be that, that that's the motive here. But th- the fact is, is that we don't know the motive for sure. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be noble, it could be ignoble, it doesn't make any difference. Um, but Paul turns around and says, here's, here's what you do. If, the minute you find out, you don't eat. And you don't eat for the sake of the one who informed you, and you don't eat for conscience sake. And so then the question is, Because Paul then turns around and says, not your your conscience, but the conscience of the one who informed you. So then the question is, well, why in the world would I worry about an unbeliever's conscience? He's not going to sit there and go, oh my goodness, my heart is smiting me right now. My conscience is tearing me up because that believer is eating a piece of meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. It's not the way unbelievers think. So when Paul says you don't eat for the sake of the one who informs you for conscience sake, I take conscience probably to be the idea of a moral consciousness. So maybe the unbeliever felt a need or an obligation to inform the Christian. Maybe he is trying to stumble him or challenge him. And Paul basically just says the best way to deal with it is just not to eat. So by not eating, you maintain a good witness. You don't eat um, Because if you did, it would be perceived as an act of compromise. It would undermine the witness that you're trying to make. Remember, the Christian has knowledge that there's only one true and living God. The unbeliever doesn't have that knowledge. The unbeliever's operating on on a worldview that says that that meat had been sacrificed to to a god. And so, it, so I think that Paul says don't eat because if the Christian eats with the knowledge that this has been offered, on the one hand, he is, he is compromising and he's compromising in a way that, that erases the antithesis between the believer and the unbeliever. So if I just, just go ahead and, and eat the believer is going to interpret that in a certain way. Now, you could say, well, he's going to interpret it wrongly. That's beside the point. This is is the whole thing of what Paul's trying to say, is that you, you conduct yourself in a way where you're thinking about the other person first. And if there's a if there is a, a good chance of misunderstanding or misrepresentation or misconstrual, then you make a decision for the good of that person. You don't just say, Well, I can't help it that he doesn't know Psalm twenty four one. You make the decision based on what is good for the other person. Even if they're being snarky, even if they're challenging, probably even more so, make a stand. Don't eat. Sometimes when we refuse to do what we should do, And look the other way. The unbeliever doesn't say, look how gracious they are. Look how non-condemning they are. The unbeliever looks at that and says, they condone this to eat the meat sacrificed to an idol with the knowledge that it's been sacrificed to an idol once the unbelievers already told you then is in a sense a condoning of idolatry as far as the unbelievers concerned okay so let's uh, let's bring this to a um, we'll use garland's words to a uh, to a ticklish situation so <clears throat> I'm not even really sure that I should use this illustration because it really may be too, um, I, 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 made a comment in preaching a couple few weeks ago about, you know, that as parents, your goal is to raise your children, to go out and, and, and to be adults, remember that, and, and not to be 40 years old and living in your parents' basement. Well, I, had two people come up and go, you know what, I'm 40 and I'm still living with my parents, you know, so, um, <laughs> So I realize that I may be treading on dangerous ground, but but let's just say for a hypothetical sake of, of argument that, that one of your children is, um, is unconverted and they are um, living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay? And the holidays are coming up. And mom and dad don't want to make a stink, so they figure, well, they're already living together, so when they stay here, they can stay in the same room. Okay. No. No. Why? Well, they're already fornicating. You know what? That's true. Unbelievers fornicate. Not all unbelievers, thankfully, but that's one of the things. It's like big-time pastime for unbelievers, fornicate. But by being permissive and allowing a situation that you believe is fundamentally wrong and not doing anything about it when you have the control over it, you know how they understand that? They understand that like this. They condone this relationship. They condone the sex. They condone the, right? No, we don't. So if you don't, then you actually take a stand and you say, you know what? No. You know, there's... there's, so, daughter, you can have your old room. Uh, boyfriend, there's a doghouse in the backyard, okay? So, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive to people, right? In fact, Paul's going to talk about that, we, that we don't want to be an offense. But do you think there's going to be people sitting around that table when he goes, you know what, I can't eat that, that's... I just found out that was sacrificed to an idol. Well, that might be offensive to somebody. You might say, you know what? My wife worked all afternoon cooking this great meal for you. Now you're not going to eat it? You jerk. That's okay. That's okay. okay. There's a difference between unnecessary offense and necessary offense. And as a Christian, have enough backbone to give necessary offense, and have enough grace to refrain from unnecessary offense. And pray to God that you have the wisdom to distinguish between the two. Because sometimes what what some of us think are necessary offenses are not necessary at all. They're just necessary because of, you know, the notes in our study Bible. All right, one person got it. Okay. Next, we come to a a very difficult section. So, verse 29. It's where Paul says, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. Now, this is is the tricky part. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Now, what, what I want you to do as I want you to back up for a second to verse 25. So Paul says, he's, this is the new section within the section. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your conscience, but the other man's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Now, one of the things when you interpret the Bible is you have to try to follow the argument. Okay. What in the world does the question in 29b have to do with just preceded Now, before anybody blurts anything out, let me just tell you that commentator after commentator says, these are two of the most difficult rhetorical questions to try to figure out what they're doing. Right? In a sense, it's it's what you would call in logic a non sequitur. It doesn't seem to follow. Okay, You, you see what I mean? You You read the argument and then you get to, Paul says this, but it doesn't seem to make sense in terms of the flow of what he's saying, right? So here's... Um, by the way, and this is always the case. You know, you start to dig into a passage, and then you start to realize that that the passage is more complex than you initially thought. So Paul says, "Why is my liberty judged by the conscience of another?" So here, here are some ideas. So is Paul offering this objection or complaint himself? So in other words, is this Paul himself? Complaining to the Corinthians, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience when he just said, don't eat for conscience sake? You see how that doesn't necessarily flow together? Are you guys tracking? We got glazed donuts, right? So the first one is Paul's defending himself somehow, all right? This is, this is the argument. Um, th- this is based on, on two ideas, that the Corinthians could say to Paul, hey, you knowingly ate idle food, why can't we? And then Paul somehow f- needs uh, to defend himself, all right? Um, by the way, Gordon Fee takes the position that Paul's defending himself here. And I, I don't, I, for the life of me, I can't see how that makes any sense in the flow of the argument, I can't see how Paul says, "If you find out it's been offered to idols, don't eat." And then turns around and complains to the Corinthians. So why am I? Why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it's, it's possible that what Paul's doing is he's kind of speaking uh, first person, sort of a vivid way to sort of represent an example where he's uh, anticipating an objection. Maybe the objection possibly the of the Corinthians, now let's, let's face it, Paul could very well be anticipating the Corinthians' objection, right? He knows the Corinthians. So is it possible that maybe the Corinthians were saying, hey, what are you doing limiting my freedom because of somebody else's conscience? Well, see, that's very possible to me. And Paul could be just putting it in first person as just sort of a sort of a generic sort of argument that represents maybe what the Corinthians may have objected to. Okay, very possible. In fact, I kind of like the uh, anticipation of an objection here, but there are a couple of things that that I think actually don't work. Let me give you another. What if, you got to look at your Bible to see this. What if in 29b, Paul is resuming the argument of 27 so that 28 and 29a are simply a parenthesis? So what I mean is something like this, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake, Paul then takes a little parenthetical thought in 28 and 29 where he, he talks about, well, what if somebody tells you about it? And then in 29b, he resumes, so if any one of the unbelievers invites you to go eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? You guys see that? See what I'm talking about? That actually flows better, okay? That flows better, so 28 and 29a, is Paul giving a parenthetical or we might say a a, a sort of a little rabbit trail on what happens if somebody says this is meat sacrificed to idols. But he resumes the argument, all right? Part of interpreting uh, the epistles in particular is actually being able to trace the argument. If you can't trace the argument, you don't know what's being said. So it could be that what Paul's doing is, is he is saying why it is permissible to eat at an unbeliever's house, and to eat what is served, all right? Now, the reason I think that that's probably right is because of verse 30. In other words, verse 30 ends up... concluding the argument, right? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So in other words, uh, unbelievers invite me all the time. I go. Why do people judge my liberty to go by their conscience when I can turn around and with a good conscience give thanks to God for the food that I'm about to eat? Okay, I think that just makes better sense, right? And so... We could say something like this, if in liberty I go to an unbeliever's house, why would my conscience be judged by, by doing such a thing, especially if in good conscience I can offer thanks to God for the food that I'm about to eat? Okay. Then Paul gets to the to three applications. How do you navigate ethically? in a world of unbelievers and believers in these tricky issues. Paul's going to say three things about how to navigate. And by the way, these three things are universally applicable to us regardless of idle meat. Okay? The first is this. Whether then so what do you think the, the important word is between those two? Whether or then then. Okay. Then why? This is this is this is grammar and Bible quiz time. Yeah, it makes the connection. It it this is the this is this is the deduction of the thought. Whether then we eat or we drink, all things do to the glory of God. So that is that is Paul's first universal application to this whole uh, sticky situation with meat in the marketplace and meat offered at an unbeliever's house. Paul says, here's how you navigate through the ethical difficulties of being a Christian in a fallen world and trying to maintain a good witness. It's really simple. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, you do it all to the glory of God. Now, this exhortation comes as a direct contrast to verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? Right? So, you don't want to live a life where you're provoking God. You want to live a life where you're glorifying God. You don't want to live a life where you're continually putting God to the test. You want to live a life in which you are conscientiously, intentionally seeking to honor and glorify God in whatever you do. Now, <clears throat> I might preach on this Sunday morning. I'm not sure. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Um, I know tomorrow's Thursday and I need to make up my mind. But So just pray for me. So this is the first word of application because... The ultimate aim in the Christian life and in Christian ethics is the glory of God. So, why do you flee immorality? Because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why should you worry about what you eat and what you drink out of for the sake of love? For the glory of God. So when 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 Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10:31 he is he's saying in a sense listen on these ethical decisions that you have to make you cannot make a decision based on pleasing self your liberty is not the litmus test of what is right or wrong the glory of god is the litmus test of what is right or wrong does this make sense so it's a challenging, difficult situation. And you can imagine some people, I don't, I, I don't think I should go to that unbeliever's house. And Paul's like, no, it's okay. And they're like, what about this? What about that? And you can imagine the, the tension. And, and boy, you, you talk about, uh, j- just do this tomorrow. Just, just, um, just throw up uh, some sort of ethical question on your Facebook page. Now, for those of you that don't even know what Facebook is, God bless you, go in peace, love and serve the Lord. Okay? But you know what I'm getting at, right? Ethical questions are always difficult and controversial among Christians. Right? Okay. Paul says, here's the first litmus test. Do what you do. For the glory of God. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this, right? So first of all, all things do for the glory of God. All things is absolutely comprehensive. What do you possibly think Paul could mean by all things? Maybe something like this in the Greek. All things. Right? In other words... No compartmentalizing. You know what I mean by that, right? Are Christians good compartmentalizers? We're great compartmentalizers. So I can take this situation and I don't have to think too hard about it from a from a Christian perspective or a biblical point of view because I can put it neatly in this box over here because it belongs to this compartment and I don't have to worry about trying to figure out ethically what is pleasing to God because this is just what I do over here. It doesn't work like that. So all things means all things. Of course, whether you eat or drink, we'll talk about that in a second, but let's just put it like this. So whether, you do your, whether you're whether you doing your taxes or whether the checker gave you too much money in the grocery store, you do everything to the glory of God. Well, I feel bad for the checker. Of course, I'm going to give the money back, but the government, they're a bunch of thieves. I mean, God couldn't certainly... No, 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 no. Um, Whatever you do, no compartmentalizing. It is all for the glory of God. So how I parent, the kind of husband I am, the kind of dad I am, the kind of employer I am, the kind of employee I am, the the kind of neighbor I am, absolutely everything, the kind of citizen I am. Hope you voted yesterday and you do it all to the glory of God. Every area, no exemptions, period. Period. So it's comprehensive. And notice he says whether you eat or drink. Now, on the one hand, I want to say whether you eat or drink is mundane. Right? So whatever you do, even if it's just eating and drinking, the most mundane things that you do, you do it to the glory of God. But it's not just mundane. Eating and drinking also then is ethical in this context, isn't it? Making the decisions of what to eat, what not to eat, drink, etc. Those decisions are ethical decisions, not just mundane decisions. They are mundane throughout most of life, but they're also ethical. So Paul's saying, so whatever you do, whether it's the mundane, ordinary stuff of life, whether it's how you get up in the morning, or whether it's an ethical decision that's going to impact another Christian, you do it all to the glory of God. So you you know what's what's fundamentally uh, at odds in this text is the Corinthians were, um, all things are lawful. So they would have what I would call a minimalist view of Christian ethics. You know what I mean by that? That is, what is the bare minimum I have to do in order to please God? This is, by the way, this is the kind of ethic I was raised on as a brand new Christian. So I became a Christian in 1980. Started going to an evangelical church in 1981. Used to go to youth group. Every single youth group, it seemed to me, was either about the rapture or about Christian dating. It's as if those were the only two things worth talking about. And Christian dating, do you know what we always talked about when we talked about Christian dating? How far can you go without going too far? That is minimalist. That's how much can I get away with without violating God's command or God's will. And the fact is, as Paul says, that's not the way to live the Christian life. Have a maximalist ethic. Don't just say, what can I get away with without going too far? Ask this, what can I do to glorify God? There's all the difference in the world. So young people, let me just put this into into, uh, shoe leather as old timers like us like to say. You probably don't even know what that means. Put it in shoe leather because you don't even have leather on your shoes anymore, all right? But here's the thing. So. If 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 I am go to Christian dating, if I'm in a relationship with another Christian person, so if you're a Christian and the other person's not a Christian, that should be a no brainer. Okay? Right? Okay. So you're in this relationship, you can approach the relationship one of two ways. I really like this person. This person makes me feel really good about myself and always tells me how beautiful I am. And 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 oh I just woo, I feel uh just the, the cockles of my heart warmed and I really uh, I, I'm I know we don't read the Bible, we don't pray anything like that, but you know what? Uh he 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 says he's Protestant. <laughs> and, and you can go so this is the relationship that that I want. All things are lawful for me. Or you could say does this relationship actually glorify God? Is the way that we the way that we interact, does that actually glorify God? The way that we spend our time, the way that we the way that we talk to each other, does it glorify God? All the difference in the world between what can I get away with and what can I do to glorify God. All the difference in the world. And the fact is, is, that, is that we should absolutely avoid at all costs a minimalist view of saying, how close can I get to the cliff without falling over and think, how in the world can I glorify God? How can I glorify God with my mind? How can I glorify God with my heart? How can I glorify God in this relationship? What glorifies God versus what I have the right to do? That's the first principle. Do all for the glory of God. Second principle of application is this. Do not be a stumbling block. Verse 32 Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Not being a stumbling block or not being a cause of offense. So remember, this this is really love. I mean, for Paul, this is what Paul says. So if, remember 8.13, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. Right? So the idea is, is that I want to live in a way that My decisions reflect love for the other person. By the way, that's also a maximalist approach of trying to glorify God by loving the other person and putting the other person first. I don't hear this as much anymore, but, you know, I used to hear it a lot. I'm just the kind of person that's just direct. I just I just kind of just tell people how it is. Okay. I just I just speak truth and just let the chips fall where they may. I'm just a truth teller. I'm a straight shooter. Now you're probably an offensive jerk. Seriously? People that take pride in what straight shooters they are usually have no concern whatsoever about how the other person receives the truth. And then we I told him the truth destroyed that friendship that's okay. I'm a truth teller, I'm a shoot a straight shooter. Kesaros era, that's Greek, right? Well, you guys are slow tonight <laughs> Paul says no you know what i live in a way that i'm not a stumbling block to people i'm not an offense to people now is the cross an offense absolutely okay we have enough as christians To already offend the world around us. We should, in fact, be incredibly sensitive to the way that the people around us hear us, perceive us, and receive from us. At the end of the day, if you just think, you know what, I just told them, I just let loose, as if that's a virtue. Actually, it's a sin. Read Proverbs over and over and over again. You have no control over your spirit. So application one, glorify God. Application two, don't be an unnecessary offense. Now, just by way of little interesting observation, don't be an offense to who? Notice what Paul does. First group, Jews. Second group, Greeks or, yeah, Gentiles. Third group, Church of God. Okay. Interesting, right? Jews, Greeks, Church of God. I would say the reason that Paul does that is because he views the church as a new humanity made up of both Jews and Greeks, okay? Jews and Gentiles. But Paul says, so, so could Jewish people be easily offended Okay, sure. So when Paul has opportunity to not offend, do you know what he does? He goes, "I'll pay that bet vow." Sure. You remember that in Acts, right? In Acts chapter twenty six, where where there's this there's this. Uh, you know they're talking everywhere about you, Paul, that you hate Moses and you hate the law and you hate Torah, you hate the temple, and and they think that you're going to bring a bunch of Gentiles into the temple precincts. And Paul says, well, you know what? Um, I'll do the ritual vow. He was free from the law; he didn't have to do it. I'll do that. I'll get a haircut. Okay, you now that a ritual haircut, right? And he does that. Why? He doesn't want to be a stumbling block. He tells Timothy, "You're going to get circumcised as we go on a missions trip." And Timothy says, "Say what?" Okay, and he says, "No, we're going. You're going to get circumcised. Don't worry, I've done this before." And <laughs> then, and so, uh, why? Because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block. He's not going to take a guy that was born of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father and not have him circumcised. The Jews wouldn't even give him a hearing, right? So, I'm not going to be an unnecessary. The, the 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 cross is a stumbling block enough to the Jews don't need to be an unnecessary stumbling block. Gentiles, absolutely, cross is a stumbling block to them too. It's utter foolishness. But Paul would say, you know what? As to those without the law, as one without the law. So that I could win them. This is is Paul's whole thing. Third application, follow Paul's example. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things not seeking my own prophet, but the prophet of the many, so that they may be saved, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, verse 33, so we, we talked about this last week. Paul's not talking about being a man-pleaser. Okay? Okay? He's not talking about being a compromiser. Okay? He's talking about, notice the context, not seeking my own prophet, but the prophet of the many, so that what? So they might be saved. Okay. Again, this this is Paul's this is Paul's ethical stance of how he relates to other people around him, and so it's a it's an echo of nine nineteen, becoming all things to all men that I might save some. It is an echo of twenty four, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor, and then Paul turns around and he says, "And you Corinthians, you be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ." Now, Paul holds himself up as a model to be followed in a number of places. We not have time to look at all the, 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 the times where Paul does that. But Paul's doctrine and Paul's life were both exemplary to show what a Christian life looked like. Okay, And he had a good enough conscience to be able to say, and by the way, this is not arrogance, but for him to be able to say, you follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, the minute I stop following Christ, you stop following me. You follow me, you look at my life, you see my example. And what is Paul's example? Well, Paul's example is, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Paul's example is, if somebody says that was offered to an idol, you don't eat it. So to follow Paul's example means, in this context, two things very specifically. One, to submit to his teaching to avoid idolatry. And second, to submit to his example and forego personal liberty for the sake of love and the good of others. Christ modeled that love, that compassion, that sacrifice. Paul says, I'm trying to model that for you. Follow it. So how do you navigate through tough situations? First of all, you have a maximalist standard. You can ask yourself, does this glorify God? That's a good question to ask before you do something. Can I I suggest to you that that's a better question than some ambiguous, what would Jesus do? You say this, Jesus would glorify God. So ask the question, does this glorify God? Is the way that I'm treating this person I work with, does it glorify God? Is the way I'm parenting my children, does it glorify God? Is the way I run my business glorify God? So we have a maximalist standard, Number two, we do not give unnecessary offense. And number three, we follow the apostolic and Christocentric pattern, being imitators of Christ. By the way, since I mentioned it, to follow the apostolic pattern as Paul followed Christ does not lead us to some sort of nebulous speculation on what would Jesus do, you go to the Gospels and you look and you look, see what Jesus did. And what did he do? Compassion, mercy, love, sacrifice. Right? So this passage, which is really probably, with the exception of verse 31, not one of Paul's more famous ones, really is chock full of godly counsel for us who live in difficult times. My heart would absolutely just be thrilled to death if young people in our congregation started asking, not what can I get away with, but what can I do to glorify God? I would would do somersaults to... To great injury to my back. If believers actually said, How can I avoid unnecessary offense in this situation? And God would be supremely glorified if all of us would say, How can I follow Christ in this? Brothers and sisters, this is nothing less than the Christian life. There's nothing here that's extraordinary. This is the ordinary Christian life of what it means to walk with God. May God help us to do these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that our own hearts would would be moved, sanctified, convicted, As we seek to apply your word to our lives. We pray that you would not let us make any exceptions. Help us, Father, to apply these truths to every area of life, so that Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.